0: Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, but of course, you should call me Chuck. And it's such a pleasure to be with you today. As always, our wonderful co-host, Alan Liu. Hello, Alan. Hey. And our wonderful guest today, Dr. Holly Capello at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hello, Holly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Oh, you uh, are an amazing person, which I can't wait to talk uh, with our audience with you about. For example, you go on zero-G flights, parabolas on big airplanes. Uh, You study the little bits of matter that smack into one another and eventually form planets like Earth and Mars and places like that. And uh, you have this cool pop culture connection with dance and with Swiss Comic-Con and all kinds of stuff, which I can't wait to talk with you about. Thank you so much for being here, it's a real pleasure.
1: It's great to get back in touch with you. Oh
0: yeah, it's wonderful. (laughs) Let's start with today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. And this comes to us from the Observatory of Paris. Uh, A group of scientists have been trying to figure out where little tiny solar system planetesimals form. Uh, do they form only in small areas uh, different parts of the solar system way you know, more than 4 billion years ago? Or can they form in lots of different places? And their research models suggest that these planetesimals can form in two distinct locations in the solar system at the same time. One place is that ice line, we call it, and then the other part is the silicon line thing where like rocks start to form out? So uh, I thought it was really cool to see the sort of the origin of our solar system and how that all works. But we have a true scholar in the field, Holly. Please tell us what the heck is a planetesimal and why does it actually <laughs> matter where they form in the early solar system?
1: Yeah, well, I think this work speaks to a problem that you need very, very special conditions to form the first kind of macroscopic objects in the solar system. Hmm. Um, We have, if you, when you take the very naive idea, we always just thought of like the kind of snowball idea where particles would just kind of keep colliding dust particles or ice particles or both um, keep colliding over and over and grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens. But when you actually look at what The original material is there. There's not very much solid material. It doesn't encounter other solids very often. There's two things that can prevent these particles from kind of growing up to planet sizes okay one thing is um so these, these particles we we call them planetesimals um because we think uh that these sort of rocks that are maybe a meter up to a few hundred meters um we flying around and hitting each other and we have evidence of this right we have craters all over our solar system so we know there are a bunch of little rocks yeah. <laughs> little-ish rocks floating around the solar system that collided and If you have enough of them, then gravity holds them together and makes a planet. But then it's like, where where did the planetesimals come from in the first place? We think it comes from the dust and ice, but once your rocks get big enough and they get Um, enough momentum when they hit each other they're going to just shatter oh so that idea is not going to work and then the other thing is that you have a little bit of gas I mean space is a vacuum but you have enough gas there that it behaves kind of like a fluid and the fluid dynamical interaction between the gas and the planetesimals or even small dust particles causes them to drift around inside the disk wow and it was shown with calculations in the 1950s that um this would this drift would be faster than like an earth's orbital time scale for oh. meter sized barriers wow bo- uh, bodies and so this led to what they called the meter sized barrier oh. that like everything would just fall into the sun and oh. you would have no more solid stuff to make your planetesimals oh from. man
0: so planetesimals so, so like these, a problem yeah yeah right so
1: planetesimals
0: are that meter barrier is is it that if you don't call if it's Gets to be one meter or bigger, we call it a plas- planetesimal. But if it's a, a meter yeah. or smaller, then it's just dust.
1: We call like meter-sized objects boulders. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but so you need you need boulders to make planetesimals. But the thing is that your boulders will disappear in this in this picture. So, um, and the thing uh, is that it was pointed out in the early like 2007 or so. There was um, a kind of breakthrough work that that the hydrodynamic interaction between the dust and the gas should create something called a streaming instability which serves to concentrate it's kind of a type of turbulence but instead of diffusing the dust it concentrates it and this makes it so that you can have a direct gravitational formation of a planetesimal and this um so this makes the hydrodynamic interaction equally or more important at boulder size scales than um the collisional effect Um, and that's actually what i work on i actually do physics experiments with low pressure gas to try to create in real life fluid instabilities that have been predicted and simulated um, but that we can't direct uh, observe directly in space but that we can try to do in the laboratory holly
0: you have in the past five minutes totally dashed my mental picture of how planets form in our solar system (laughs) you have like Just advanced it like three levels by making me understand and realize that there's this whole flowing component, what you call the fluid component, which I never even knew had any significance whatsoever. All I thought was like little things smack into big things and make bigger things and and that's it. But you're telling me that that's like, not even 1% of the story. That's remarkable.
1: Yeah, and there's there's actually a lot of um, things that we don't know about astrophysical flows in accretion disks um, that are related problems. I mean, we know they're accreting because we ex- observe them bright in the x-rays and we know that the gas disappears and stuff, but yeah, there's still a lot of questions about like how turbulence is formed and... Protoplanetary disks, and Whoa. it's a related question. But <laughs> my focus is really um, about how the solids and the gas interact, um, because that's it's what we want to know what the solids do. It's like the the question for ha- how to actually get the initial seeds of um, planet formation Fantastic. Started. I mentioned something about Alice in Wonderland before oh, we started yes, talking. Oh yes, yes, yes. Remind us. I was trying to so like the the whole the whole idea of the parabola comes from einstein's realization that when when objects are in free fall they don't feel gravity acting upon them and i was trying to and it also comes back from like you know originally the the realization i think it was galileo that pointed out that objects of the same of different sizes will and different mass will all fall yeah. the same speed, right? right? Even if they're accelerated <laughs> oh, at they're the same rate. Of the tower. Yeah. Um, so, like the two objects in their own reference frame with respect to each other, nothing. There's no forces acting on them when they're falling. Wow. So that's basically what the airplane does. It goes into this kind of push-up phase, and then it goes into a free fall phase. And when you're falling, that's when uh, everything becomes weightless and you really experience the weightlessness and then you pull out. So when you go into the pull up phase you f- you experience something called hypergravity. Oh. And so it's like twice Earth's gravity and then you go you get injected into <laughs> microgravity and then it's about 20 seconds and then you pull out.
2: So on average, over the whole flight, it's like Earth's gravity, but it's just in bursts of zero to extra, zero to extra.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you have, we have these little breaks in between of like three minutes. So if you need to like change the parameters of your experiment or something, you can. So we tried to, we tried to. Maximize the number of different parameter sets we can cover in a single flight. But you know, I was there's like this scene when Alice in Wonderland falls through into the rabbit hole. Yeah. Like in the Disney version, for example, she's falling and like everything's moving is still with respect to her. And then she's she kind of like catches something and then she it's like eating jam or something and she lets it go. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it's like then it she lets it go and and it floats up and she keeps falling at a different speed and. like no that's not right that's that's (laughs) that's
0: not physical (laughs)
1: yeah Yeah. that's the the wonderland part right because actually the jam should fall down with her the only thing that is real is that her dress is kind of like a parachute and it kind of like stops her fall and that's the the thing that can cause so air resistance can Mm, actually stop the fall. And that's one of the things we study is like how, what is the aerodynamic drag on dust particles oh. in low pressure gas, both collectively or if you have oddly shaped particles that are like aggregates mm-hmm. like we think exist in the early solar system is sort of how how so the fluid's kind of special right it's not like a it's not like a liquid or a gas we find here it's it's a vacuum fluid right and so the aerodynamic drag laws are a little bit different in that regime yeah
0: and that's why you so, need no gravity because any kind of gravity from earth would just drag everything in the wrong direction you can actually see how the flow is going
1: wow yeah
0: super cool uh do we have a question alan tell, tell us if we got a question for holly that'd be a really cool
2: yeah so we've got questions i will encourage anyone listening to who would like to and has the ability to to join us on patreon and ask some questions because we need more questions we're running low on questions <laughs> um, we have some questions here um so the first question is sort of related to this kind of stuff so in between the planets there's a bunch of stuff in space, I guess you could call it interplanetary debris or something like that. What kinds of stuff is there now? And what kinds of stuff is was there in the past?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. Also, because I'm not sure I ans- I diverted a little bit from the original article, because I was saying you need special conditions to make um, planetesimals. Yeah. But yeah. there you also need special types of debris. I mean, in the sense that um, this fluid dynamical process that we expect to help Facilitate the planetesimal formation process only works if your particle size is a, is a certain size, or if um, the ratio of like the mass in, that's tied up in gas is similar mm-hmm. to the ratio of mass that's tied up in solids. Oh, and okay. so this condition is not met in all places. So, like the ice line or the silicate line, those can be special places because one thing that happens at the ice line is that you get a pile up of water vapor and you can... Mm.
0: Um, I realized that I used the word ice line, and I didn't really explain what the ice line is. Could you remind us what the ice line actually is?
1: Right. So the ice line is um, it's just a location at a certain distance from the sun where water is found at in its solid form.
0: Oh, sort of so, like a snow line on a mountain here on earth or something like that, right? Below which it's yeah. it's rain and above which it's snow. But in your case, Below which it's vapor or or liquid or something. On the other side, it's ice.
1: Yeah, wow. that's a funny thing. In a vacuum, um, you don't go through the liquid phase necessarily because
2: mm.
1: you know you, you go you basically have freezing and sublimation because because the temperature is low and the pressure is low. Oh, um, so just so... go straight
2: from solid to gas and vice versa. Yeah. Cool. Okay, please continue. Sorry,
0: I interrupted you in that thought process there.
1: No, that's fine. So one idea that. Um, That we have for how particles can grow, dust particles can grow is not only um, that particles can collide, um, but they can also like receive this water vapor and start to kind of grow a shell of ice. And this um, has been shown to be also a kind of growth mechanism, um, this kind of ice nucleation mechanism. And you also get a concentration of particles at this. At this line, because because of this increased uh, vapor pressure of the ice that has sublimated into into gas, like right inside of the ice line. Wow! Um, and so it kind of stops and traps partic- dust particles that are dripping in, and so you get you get more particles that are available there to participate in the growth process and then can trigger these um, fluid dynamical processes. And as far as the, I imagine for the condensation line, it's similar that you would, you know, have a kind of rain out of solid part. I haven't read that paper in detail, but I, I can kind of yeah, imagine that's that's one of the reasons they find this is that it's somewhere where you can get a high dust to gas density ratio, meaning that you have a high, higher concentration of solids suddenly that can trigger these planet formation mechanisms.
0: Very cool. So how much, the, yeah, how much material is floating around in the solar system overall?
1: The, <laughs> well, I mean, we we kind of look, I mean, in the beginning, we kind of assume that the mass was distributed kind of homogeneously, but a lot of like the most recent observations of protoplanetary disks show all these interesting structures, and there's a lot of postulation about, you know, rings and asymmetries and stuff yeah. like that, and... This is all thought to be part of planet formation process but like the very naive picture that people do is they kind of take our sister solar system and work backwards so you just put okay. the planets where they are and we call this the minimum mass solar nebula where you just kind of take these planets you kind of break them up and you spread them out into rings um, oh <laughs> their approximate location wow. and you get a kind of power law um that that gives you their initial initial conditions um, Oh. density distribution uh-huh. that would it, you would need is the minimum amount of um, solid material that it would require to produce our own solar system.
0: Wow. Super cool. Tell us about your trips up into the clouds and what you're doing in zero gravity as you're trying to make these planetesimals or, or make things happen between the liquids and the gases or, or the fluid flows in, in low pressure things. I mean, I'm I'm butchering all the technical stuff, but tell tell us what you do up in in those planes, Pahali. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: so so basically, it's a kind of a space analog environment. Um, you we use a airplane called Air Zero G. It's operated. Okay. Um, out of Bordeaux, France, by a company called um, Novusbus, that uh, it's a s- semi private company, but they, um, they only service scientific flights basically. And uh, it's the only one in Europe. They work for the DLR, the German Aerospace Agency. ESA, the French um, Aerospace Agency, and sometimes I think JAXA, the Japanese um, Space Agency. And um, they're very specific space analog flights. A cool thing, the airplane, Air Zero G, used to be Angela Merkel's private jet
2: <laughs>
1: oh, wow. and she donated it to science. Wow.
2: That's cool. <laughs>
1: and so they like, they highlight out most of it for um, science experiments. And then on the back there's like seats. And um, so the way it works is like you take off from Bordeaux, we fly over the ocean and it's usually a three day campaign. And we execute about 90 parabolas. Wow. And I, this, this week I was trying to explain, I was trying, thinking to myself like, to explain um, you know, what a parabola is and why, why we get zero gravity out of it. Um, so the, there's scientific reasons why we want to eliminate gravity um, from the hydrodynamical perspective. Yeah. When you have particles in a low density gas, they're not buoyant, um, right? So they just fall down. So if you can remove gravity, then you can get them kind of flowing. Wow, that's, um,
0: that's a great idea. Reason. So how? Wait, you you did thirty parabolas a day for three days. Yeah, how long? So that's like
1: ninety-three parabolas in, yeah. in three days. That's amazing.
0: You so for ninety-three times you were like fighting vomiting. Is that right? because you're in zero gravity
1: yeah we take um a pretty hefty dose of like anti motion sickness pills right before we all get a shot and so it makes you feel kind of dizzy before you go but it really helps during the flight but it's still very disorient even if you're not sick it's exhausting and disorienting and so like the preparation and the the flight, the, like flight sequence planning is very, we try to do as much beforehand because it's, you, you don't, you're not like, it's a little bit hard to concentrate. Like you need to have, you need to know exactly what you're supposed to do and make it as simple as possible during flight. Yeah. Yeah. You can um, troubleshoot things, but um, not too much because there's a lot of um, safety regulations on board. So you can't um, yeah. obviously you can't disassemble things and take them apart because they're just going to be flying around and stuff like that. So, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> there's basically a big red off switch. If you have a problem, then you have to just turn it off and wait out the flight. Wow.
0: And and you must you fit some sort of physical fitness parameters in order to be able to go up there.
1: Yeah, we have a health examination. It's mainly it's mainly they want to make sure you don't have panic attacks or that you have a healthy heart um, and. I don't think it's as tense as intense as like being an astronaut. Um, It's not like the training is really that intense, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's physical work, which is something I like about it. Yeah.
0: It's really cool because I imagine that you as well, disclosure to everybody, uh, Holly was a dancer for many years, a, a professional high quality, super duper dancer. And that physical training must have now helped you like, For example, if you spot corners now really well, you you don't throw up. Like if I start spinning in a room or something, I'm going to throw up in like 10 seconds. But you've been spinning all your life. So you like know how to do this sort of thing, right? That's pretty amazing.
1: It's for me, it's good to be motivated to take care of myself because I see my performance is not good physically if i'm if i'm really stressed or i'm really overworked in the sense of like sitting at my computer too much or something like that then my body's gonna fail and so it's nice to get back to that thing where my lifestyle actually matters for my performance and in grad school you know you you let your health go a little bit (laughs) yes sitting at the computer working not sleeping that much and stuff so um it was a good incentive for me personally to kind of like take care of myself a little bit better. But it, it's also like the whole idea of, of feeling how you um, respond to gravity is, is really exciting for someone that has, you know, a history of you know, working with the body. And that's actually a lot of the research on board is not pure astrophysics like what we do. A lot of it is of the other experiments are about um, doing experiments to test how the human body responds in microgravity to support um, manned space flight. So there's a lot of things about how our proprioception works or how the spine works or lots of neurological things that could happen. Um, Even like other things like scene gene expression, some, some other biomarkers, Medical research. Wow. Um,
0: so while you're up there doing your science, are you also an experimental test subject?
1: No, they actually bring their own test subjects. There was the last um, flight, there was um, the COVID outbreak in a group that was doing this <gasps> and they were kind of soliciting volunteers to do one of these kind of other experiments, but I didn't end up doing that. But no, I wasn't a test subject, but I, it's sort of the other other fields that are using these, um, this platform.
2: Wow. Okay, so Alan, is there another question that we can have Holly answer? Yeah. So this is we're talking about, um, you know, stuff floating around in really undense gas. Um, so uh, we've heard that the Moon is too small to have an atmosphere because it's you know smaller than things like Mercury or, or Earth or Mars or Venus. Um, but I've also heard that scientists want to study the Moon's atmosphere. So, what is it? Does it does it have an atmosphere? Does it not have an atmosphere? What's what's up with that?
1: Yeah, I think like Mercury, it more or less doesn't have an atmosphere. Um, we know this because, uh, well, for example, there's craters on the Moon that are really old, and um, if there were an atmosphere, they would have been eroded, and uh, there's basically no weather and stuff like that. But but we do have evidence of these kind of transient events where, yeah, the Moon might be outgassing there should be some volatiles trapped oh. inside the surface and so, um, there's been detected uh, water um, in very, very trace amounts. And so this, of course, is an important question because people want to know, Did with, were there ever moons, oceans there? How much water is there still? Yeah. And could it be somehow harvested eventually? Or could you, <laughs> could you set up some kind of lunar base? Like, could you actually get Water locally. I don't think there's enough there to do anything with. But wow, um, there's lots of there's lots of important questions related to it. We look into a little bit this question of how gas seeps through granular material oh. because it's a little bit different than like hydrology on the Earth because Earth's a big body. Um, the grains are packed together under Earth's gravity. So there's a certain density of the soil. The moon has its own kind of soil. It's more like a regolith. And also asteroids and comets, which are planetesimals, also have this kind of dusty regolith on the outside that we think is the captured dust from this planetesimal formation process we talked about. And I mean, comets are the famous example when they come close to the sun. They start to outgas and they blow off their dust. They usually develop both a dust tail that follows the solar wind and a, and a gas tail. Right. That's a really, that's actually what we do our experiments in support of is um, space missions to study comets. Wow. Um, so there was the Rosetta mission that um, yes. our group in Bern was very involved with the OSIRIS camera on that. And our collaborators in in Göttingen at the Max Planck Institute for uh, Solar System Studies um, also are heavily involved in that. And then the Comet Interceptor is going to be the new ESA mission. Ooh, I, I, do okay. you know about no, the Comet Interceptor? No, that sounds great. So it's basically the idea is that we have a satellite that uh, has cameras and lots of different instrumentation on board for studying com- comets, kind of like Rosetta did, but instead of um, kind of going in orbit to have a chosen target, it basically sits at the Lagrange, one of the Lagrange points, and we wait for a comet to enter the early solar oh. system, and then we send it out to meet it. <laughs> fantastic. So
2: you're just going to pick a comet and just like, we're going to go over that one.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think there's... Um, like a target list of some that could and then you could, you know, there's some that kind of were discovered serendipitously. So, so yeah, that's the idea is that you're ready to kind of go chase the, whichever comet creeps into the inner solar system and study it in the level of detail that Rosetta did with um, 67P trendino so,
0: um, whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't
1: even try to remember pronounce the names it <laughs> <of> the 67
2: people <laughs> 67P will be good enough
0: oh that's fantastic uh, holly um there's so much more to talk about but we're basically out of time next time you come back we have to talk about like your cool stuff in the movies and the stuff that you do like at uh, Swiss Comic Con, I think known as Basel Fantasy. Uh, I would love to get more into that. How can we keep track of you? Are, are you on social media? Are, is there some way that we can find out the things that you've been doing of late?
1: Yeah, I um, I mean, you can follow me on, on Twitter. I post there sometimes. But, oh, I mean, it's just Holly Capello. Okay. Yeah, at Holly Capello.
0: Wonderful. I can't. Well, we will find you. Uh, uh, not in a creepy way. Okay. Just in a nice way. <laughs> because yeah. I need to learn more. Not not that I'm still in middle school, but I am still in middle school. When you said outgas, I was like, oh yeah, that's the kind of science I want to learn about. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, boy. Um, uh, Holly Capello, yeah. thank you so much for being with us today. What a pleasure it was to learn about these things. You have literally expanded my understanding of the development of planets in our solar system tenfold in just a few minutes. Okay. Thank you so much.
1: That's saying a lot. because you're pretty knowledgeable. So <laughs> well, ex- that's the most I've accomplished all week. Oh. I promise. <laughs> Not at
0: all. My expertise is in galaxies, as you know, so it's a little bit different, but that's just wonderful. Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you. And and please come back again. All right.
1: All right. Thank oh, you. Yes. Thanks
0: a lot. Alan Liu, our co-host. Thank you so much. Really great job as always. Really appreciate you. Yeah.
2: I learned a lot today. It was great.
0: Yes. And to all of you out there, Uh, Thank you for being part of us today, a part of this podcast, part of this broadcast. If you like what you hear and see, please go support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Universe.